In 2010, American journalist Lenora Chu and her husband relocated to Shanghai, China with their toddler son, Rainey, in tow. Unlike most expats, they decided to enroll Rainey in a state-run primary school, part of an education system, the world's largest, that's renowned for its academic results, but notorious for its more authoritarian practices. Seven years later, Rainey is still attending Chinese schools and his mom is out with a new book that offers an unprecedented behind-the-scenes look at education in China and asks what Americans might learn from its successes and its shortcomings. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today all the way from Shanghai by Lenora Chu, author of Little Soldiers, An American Boy at Chinese School and the Global Race to Achieve. You can find a conversation between Lenora and former Washington, D.C. schools chancellor Michelle Rhee on the journal's website at educationnext.org. And I'm thrilled to have the chance to speak with her myself today. Lenora, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Hi, Marty. Thanks for having me. I want to start off by congratulating you on a remarkable and remarkably honest book. And I wonder if we can start at the beginning. You had multiple options when you arrived in Shanghai, including international private schools. Why did you decide to send Rainey to a Chinese state-run school? You know, I really wanted him to learn Mandarin. We all know in education the benefits of being bilingual. And it just didn't seem that some of these other options, the private schools, the international schools, were going to get him to a real near-native level of fluency in Mandarin. And that was part of the decision. Cost was also a decision factor. And, you know, really down the street was this great public local school that everyone raved about. It sort of made sense. But the school was down the street, but enrolling Rainey in it, securing him a seat, wasn't exactly straightforward. Can you talk a little bit about <laughs> how you were able to accomplish that and what it reveals about some of the more, I guess, informal aspects of what we think of as a quite rigid system? That's right. You know, it's funny. We jumped through lots of hoops. We strolled by at opportune times. We, put, we chatted up the security guard. We tried to get a meeting with the principal. We left notes. You know, it, it's not very different from what I think some parents in urban cities, you know, cities in the U.S. are, are doing. But this was a very competitive school. The, the wait list was a mile long. We lucked out. I mean, we happened, they happened to have a spot. My son was one of the few foreigners allowed in that year, and, and we really just got lucky. Um, you know, the interview went great. It just all started the line. Now, I have to ask about Rainey being force-fed eggs in his first few days of attending kindergarten as a three-year-old. Uh, this is the first of many eyebrow-raising episodes in his early years in Chinese schools. What exactly happened, and what did you learn from it? So he was only three, and it took me a while to get the story out. But he basically told me that the teacher had, you know, at lunchtime, there were almost 30 toddlers in her classroom, and she thought it was important for them to eat eggs. And so she basically sat there and spooned them into their mouths until everyone had to swallow. But son, being who he is, kept spitting the eggs out. And four times he said, Mom, four times, and I finally swallowed. So this, to me, is forced feeding. You know, I think in the U.S., the teacher might get dragged into court for <laughs> using these types of methods. I rush off to confront her, and she says, don't ever question my authority in front of a child. And this is my introduction to the Chinese system. You know, a teacher knows best, and parents are expected to fall in line. And you see that 
sort of culture of respect for the teacher reflected in various ways. Uh, one of the areas it shows up is in these text conversations that parents conduct in response to teacher requests. Tell us a little bit about that aspect of the culture. Sure. It's, there's a mobile app called WeChat. It's actually the most widely used mobile platform, messaging platform in the world. Um, almost a billion users. It's like WhatsApp, but to me it's faster. You have this sort of WeChat teacher-parent group, and anytime the teacher sends something out, like bring this prep clothing to school or make sure your, your son does his math homework and I want you to sign to acknowledge receipt, all the parents are chiming in saying, I got this teacher. Teacher, you're too amazing. Teacher, you're wonderful. You work so hard. It is fancy on this sort of WeChat group. And I begin to get so anxious because you literally have to chime in or it feels you have to chime in instantaneously. And these messages are going around at all hours of the night and day. And um, I realized that a lot is expected of a parent in, in China. <laughs> I had a lot of learning to do. Now, some of the uh, episodes that Rainy experienced that you were able to observe from a distance sparked curiosity in one of the most remarkable sections of the book deals with your visit to a different public kindergarten. How did you get access in the first place, and what stood out when you had the opportunity to sit in on a typical Chinese classroom? So I'll preface that by saying that my son began to really drag his feet. He didn't like school in the early months. And I was wondering, the first meeting I sort of came to terms with, you know, I talked to the teacher about it. I don't believe she did that again. Um, but there were other signs that were worrisome, and I tried to get an observation at, inside my son's school. I was denied, of course. And then I began this reporting journey. And over the next few years, it took me a while to develop sources, to develop Chinese friends who were willing to make introductions to principals and teachers, and it took that amount of time before someone finally let me into classrooms. And so I got into this very, I would say, average Shanghai kindergarten. My son was at one of the top, you know, where government officials and executives and, you know, send their kids to school. I got into a very normal Shanghai kindergarten, and I saw things that were pretty shocking. There's this little boy that I call in my book, because I nicknamed him Little Pumpkin, and he couldn't sit still. And, you know, he's large and lively, but he's not a characteristic that you want if you're a Chinese schoolboy. So the teacher is constantly pushing him into chairs, constantly shaming him in front of other classmates. He couldn't draw rain the way that she wanted him to draw rain. You know, it only falls from the sky to the ground, and it comes in little dots. But he was drawing big blobs of purple. You know, he just didn't sit. And... It was just so clear that you had to conform if you were to be part of this classroom. And uh, this is one of the things that, frankly, the Chinese government says they would like to change, this authoritarian teacher culture, but I, I wonder how fast it's going to get there. It seemed as if a lot of energy was spent in the early days of kids' enrollment in school, focused on issues of classroom behavior, including just how to sit in a chair, and what do you think drives that that early emphasis? A few things. Well, it's a very, you know, Confucian culture is very top-down, bottom-up obedience, top-down authority, and also classroom sizes. I mean, you know, in the book I write about context, the context to the system. It's accomplished a lot in just 50, 60 years. It has a completely 
reverse the illiteracy rate. You know, four out of five Chinese couldn't read 50 years ago. And this is a system with very little resources. They had to build schools, write textbooks from scratch. They've accomplished that, but they've taken many, many shortcuts. And when you have, you know, 50 to 70 students in a classroom, as you did in the early years of the system, you take shortcuts. All you do is you sit there at the front and you lecture if you're a teacher. And, you know, the last decade or so, China is realizing this is not the way, this is not the education of the future, and and they're trying to, to change. Now, one of the things you learn along the way, uh, and you probably already knew this uh, already, but uh, is that education in Shanghai is very different from education in China more broadly. Um, how did you become aware of some of those differences, and you know what uh, should we keep in mind? That's a great point, and I'm glad you bring that up. So, you know, PISA brought a lot of attention to Shanghai education, but Shanghai is China's largest and wealthiest city. There's a vast story happening outside of this megacity that I felt was being untold, um, was not being told. And, you know, if you, just as journalists, my husband and I are both journalists, we're really interested in the Chinese story. And part of that story is migration. The migration patterns, several hundred million coming from the rural countryside into big cities. What happens to those kids? And rural education really lags behind what's happening in Shanghai. Shanghai, in fact, is a pilot district for education reform. You're lucky to be a kid who attends school in Shanghai. You're 55 times more likely to get into, you know, China's top universities if you have a Shanghai household registration. What happens in Hunan province or even Xinjiang? And that's why I felt it was important to tell stories of, of those rural families, which I did end up including in the book. Now, you and your husband faced a key decision point when Rainey was five, I believe. A spot opened up at an international private school that boasts of its child-centered approach, sounds much more Western in its orientation, and you have just three days to decide whether you're going to accept that seat. Mm-hmm. What, what led you right. to stay on the original path? You know, I think it was more of a leap of faith. So by this point in my investigative journey, I began to tease out the benefits to Chinese education culture. Now, note that I say culture, not system. The system is devastating for many families. You know, 18 million kids sit for the high school entrance exam, about half fall away. They can't get into the next level of schooling. This is not, you know, this is not a... a a fun experience for most families, but there are some positives, and it was about respect for the teacher. It is about the way the Chinese teach math in the early years, the high expectations. And so when my son Rainey finally got a seat into this, this sort of international Western school, I started to really question, was I ready to give up all of the positives? And at this international school, the parents Wow, some of the parents, and I and I equate this with, you know, in the book I began reporting in American classrooms too for comparison, and American teachers are telling me that they're having trouble managing parent expectations. Parents are challenging them in ways that they didn't, you know, that they weren't a generation ago. And this is kind of what I was seeing at this international school in Shanghai. It was almost, you know, it's false equivalency that in many ways the patterns are the same. These are Western, American, Canadian. Australian European parents and, and those teachers felt beleaguered. And I wasn't sure, you know, that I wanted that right away for my son. After you make this decision, your mother in law, I believe, offers what struck me as 
very sage advice. She advises you to look for the good in whichever school you chose. And uh, this leads, you know, as you just started to say, uh, to a set of questions about what is the good in Chinese education culture, even if the system itself is, is not a model. You just began to talk about some of uh, those positive aspects, the respect for teachers, the rigor of the math instruction. One of the uh, positive aspects you highlight in a chapter with the title, Genius Means Struggle. What are you trying to get at there? You know, it's interesting. The Chinese socialize their kids to struggle and to work hard. They understand that learning is difficult. You don't give up if you don't get something right away. And all the language is around teaching kids this, you know. And that's why grades are really less devastating in this culture. Say a Chinese kid comes home with a 70 in math. It's not, oh, don't worry. It's okay. You're not stupid. Don't worry about it. It's, oh, you didn't work hard enough and you need to work harder next time. And I found that there's actually research, and you, you know this probably better than I do, there's research to support this. If you look at Asian background versus non-Asian background kids, the Asians have made that connection between effort and achievement in the classroom. And when you translate that into, say, the American culture, we get it in sports, right? You work and you train harder. The last place finished doesn't mean you're stupid or inherently inferior. It just means you need to train harder. But when it comes to math or science, we have a tendency to believe that kids have it, they have a talent for it, but they don't. And that means we're giving on, we're giving up on them at an early age. And that, I think, is one of the biggest learnings for me from the Chinese system. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think in American culture generally and around education, we like to tell ourselves that we believe uh, that effort matters. Uh, we like to quote Thomas Edison saying genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, but it really does seem as if there's uh, an implicit belief that a lot of academic success comes down to innate ability and that unless you explicitly you know, help students understand the way in which they can improve their performance with effort, uh, um, giving them what you know, education researchers like to call a growth mindset, that um, you know, uh, their belief structure is very different. Let's talk about the other direction of cross-cultural learning here. Uh, as you alluded to uh, a little earlier, there are efforts underway in Chinese education to try to learn from uh, Western systems, including the American system. The principal of Rainey School tells you we're trying to adopt some Western ways. Um, what exactly are they trying to adopt, and how's it going? So one of the things that they believe we Americans do well is that we are so good at listening to kids. What do you think about what we just learned? Let's discuss. Let's talk about it. And we're encouraging their interests, their own curiosities. And that's the intrinsic motivation part of learning that the Chinese feel is almost completely absent right, in the system because it's exam-driven, it's based on a teacher's praise, and those are the things that motivate you to achieve in the classroom. So they're trying to find that balance. Um, another thing is when it comes to, I don't really want, you know, creativity 
when it comes to that component of independent expression, you know, disruptive thinking, being able to offer ideas that challenge a teacher, that challenge the students, the classmates sitting next to you, that's also not encouraged in the classroom. That's not to say that once Chinese are getting into an environment, you know, there's a lot happening in the marketplace. Tech innovation. I was just at the Fortune Global Tech um, Conference here in China, and there is so much happening in this space. And when certain Chinese are getting into an environment that encourages creativity, entrepreneurship, and expression, things are happening, but it's not necessarily in the classroom. So they understand that we do that better, and they are taking some cues, starting in preschool. If you think about just the preschool circle, kids sitting in a circle and being able to come in and out of that circle whenever they'd like to explore something in the classroom, that is not how the Chinese um, classroom is structured, and I think that's very interesting. The final chapter of your book is called The Middle Ground, which is exactly in the spirit of what we've just been talking about, trying to uh, figure out sort of uh, balances that could be struck between the educational culture in China and in the U.S. You note that you have no expectation that Rainey will continue through the state-run Chinese school system throughout his educational career. So implicitly, the middle ground you and your family has struck is primary school in the Chinese system and, at some point, secondary school in a different system. Do you think, in some sense, that that is a way for you all to strike the right balance as a family? That is what we're, we're also mitigating other factors. His school, while it's very progressive, I would say for a Chinese school, he's in, he's in third grade now. The art, there's not a lot of sort of liberal arts education, reading for pleasure. He's also very athletic and they don't really do that kind of thing in the school day. So we compensate as we're going along. But yes, and even most Chinese themselves think that, you know, the primary system is really one of the best. And, you know, in part because China spent so much time developing the primary school system, compulsory education is only one through nine. They've only succeeded in delivering that universally. And now they're working on high school. And high school is just not where it should be here in, in China. It's a test prep churn factory. And everyone knows it. And most people who are lucky enough to have options will try to leave the system before that point. My guest today has been Lenora Chu, an award-winning journalist and the author of Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. You can find her conversation with Michelle Rhee about her family's experiences in the world's largest education system on our website at educationnext.org. Lenora, congratulations on the book, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks again, Marty. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard... Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Stitcher, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since we launched in 2015. Talk to you next week.